Well, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I thank you for fellowship and the, the joyous faces of my brothers and sisters as they come in, Lord. I thank you for them and what a joy it is to be able to study the word together. We pray for our day. We pray that you would help us to learn your word. I pray for Bob in the sermon that we would learn what you have for us in 1 Corinthians and also at the baptism, that this would be a day that those who are baptized would never forget their day to remember their union through faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to be getting into part two of the message that we are in in Proverbs chapter two. And if you remember, the section of Proverbs, we're going to be looking at how the wisdom of God can protect, especially the young man, but it would apply to anyone from two very deadly sins. The first of those sins is to follow the criminal element and try to gain money by illegal means. And the second, the second error and evil that the wisdom of God will keep a young man particularly from is getting together with the immoral woman, some other woman, I should say some woman other than his wife. And so that's the section we're in. If you remember, this whole passage in, in Proverbs chapter 2 is governed by an if this, then that. And remember, the if is the protesis, the then is the apotesis. That's how it's structured. If you will receive God's wisdom, if you will seek it out, then you will be given wisdom that keeps you from these errors and the sin. So remember the ifs that we saw. In Proverbs 2, 1 through 4, I'll read them again. Notice Solomon said, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. So I wanted you to notice the three ifs. Notice, I'll put up my pointer. You see it in red probably. You have three ifs in this passage. And here you have a father. I mentioned the point last time that more than likely the father to the son is an earthly father to his earthly son, right? But the issue is implied the earthly father is equipped with the word of God. This is a believer teaching his son. That's the idea. Notice the three ifs. If you'll receive my words, if you'll cry out for discernment, and if you will seek. And that's the key idea, the idea of seeking after wisdom. But where does wisdom come from? Well, we've learned already that that only comes from God. So seeking for wisdom is synonymous with seeking for God. And so then we asked this question, do people naturally desire God? And there I put up Romans 3. 9 through 12, where we went through the fact that no one seeks after him, no, not one. And the connection I want you to remember is this phrase in verse 9 in Romans where all people are under sin, whether you're a Jew, notice, or a Gentile, we're all under sin. And I said that that phrase in the Greek, hupo homartia, you could render it in bondage to sin or simply under sin. And that's the human condition, and that's why... Because we are all born that way, there is none of us who seeks for God. And again, Paul took that from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. They're synonymous. Okay, so what we concluded then is the only way that any of us can ever seek after God is he first seeks us. 
And some of the passages we looked at were, for example, John 15, 16, where Jesus says, you didn't choose me to his disciples, but I chose you. But I want you to see in another passage in Romans how Paul depicts the Holy Spirit of setting us free from this condition of being under sin. So what sets us free? The work of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit enables us to see the beauty and the excellence of the gospel, the need for the gospel. And so I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 1 through 2. And I just want to play on how you and I end up seeking after God is because he seeks us and he regenerates us by his Spirit. So I want to kind of show you this connection between Romans 3 and Romans 8. Notice in Romans 8, verses 1 through 2, Remember, Paul has just talked in Romans 7 about being under sin and the condition of being in bondage to sin is hopeless. But then he comes to this good news, and what accounts for the good news? Well, he says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, does everyone see in that text, the key thing that we have to interpret is what does Paul mean by the law of the Spirit as opposed to the law of sin? How is he using law? And the reason this is important is so many times Paul uses the law almost exclusively for the Mosaic law. But there are times where he will use the law to mean principle or power. And the proof of that is if you look back to some verses earlier in your Bible, to Romans 7.23, Paul talks about the law of sin. And certainly he's not inferring that the Mosaic law is that. He's talking about the power of sin. So let, let's reread that verse 2. He says, For the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the power of sin and of death. That's the idea that he's conveying. So how are we set free from being under sin, under the power of sin? It's by the Holy Spirit. So again, what I'm wrestling with is what does Paul mean by the law of the Spirit versus the law of sin? I think he's using law not as the law of Moses, but simply as a power or authority. Does everyone see that in Romans 8, 1 through 2? I just saw some confused looks. Yeah, Bob. Well, good, you got the Greek text there. I got the Greek here. I see um, namas, or his law. Yes. But it says, of the Spirit... Yeah. And we have a genitive there, it looks like. Mm. So are, is it used a similar way? Yeah, I think that's the idea, is that he's using a law. He's playing off of the law of Moses because he's talked about it so much. Now he wants to use law slightly differently as a power. And the idea is that the law of sin or the power of sin holds us in bondage. And right, that and that's kind of what he was it. talking about in 7. Yes, So exactly. you may want to be sinless, but it doesn't make you so. Right, Okay. Right, exactly. All right, thank you. <laughs> well said, yeah. Yeah, Brian. That uh, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, through Jesus' death on the cross, the, the substitutionary atonement, would that uh, play into what they're trying to get across? So therefore, the sin yes. is not going to be held against you. Absolutely. And what Paul is uh, primarily referring to in Romans 8 is how you were set free from the bondage of sin. And you're precisely right. It's because of Christ's work, but particularly it's the Holy Spirit that enables you to believe in that work. 
So prior, what he's really dealing with is human inability. And what he has to answer is the thorny question, why did the law fail? Listen carefully. The law of Moses didn't fail because the law of Moses was somehow substandard. Although it's not on par ever with the system of the new covenant in the spirit. But Paul says that it's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. The problem is our sinful nature co-ops it. It uses the law. The law incites our sinful nature so that it just makes us sin all the more. So the problem is our sin nature, not the law of Moses. But in order to remedy the problem is God in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, had to come and remove this bondage so that we could perceive and believe, that we could trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. And so that's the being set free that we see. And so what I want you to see is that God is the one who seeks for us. Um, Remember Jesus says in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And so he is the one who's seeking. In fact, in Luke 19.10, the seeking zetao, it means just that. He's seeking for those that belong to him. Now, I want you to see another passage that shows that it's only God's elect that truly seek after God. So, for example, you'll see in uh, 1 Chronicles and other passages that come to my mind where God will say, seek the Lord while he may be found, seek his face continually. And so we're really commanded to seek God, just like we're commanded to be holy as he is holy. And yet we know that we can't do that apart from his power and his grace. And so I want you to see that it's left to the elect alone who end up seeking after God. And turn your Bibles to Acts 15, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to show you this through the Jerusalem Council and something very interesting that James ends up saying as he comments on Peter's message there at the Jerusalem Council. So turn to Acts 15, verses 14 through 18. And remember, in this passage, Peter had affirmed that God had brought in the Gentiles into the salvific fold. Well, now James is going to affirm that Peter is exactly right by citing the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Amos. And so that's what James is commenting on. He says, and this is Acts 15, verse 14, it says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, to verse 15, notice he says, With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Okay, so now he's going to cite Amos 9, 11 through 12, to show, yes, this is what the prophets of old have always foretold. So here's Amos 9, 11. It says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will build its ruins, and I will restore it so that... So notice the purpose statement. Verse 17, purpose statement, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And, notice this is synonymous, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, one thing I want you to see there in verse 17 is a synonymous relationship between the rest of mankind. Does everyone see that phrase? And the Gentiles who are called by my name. They are one in the same. In fact, does everyone see where it goes? It says, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. I think that that and 
should be what's called the ascensive use of the and or chi. Chi is the term in Greek. Now, what do I mean by ascensive? Instead of being a conjunction and, it should be rendered namely or even, something like that, because they're synonymous. And let me show you an example that can someone turn their Bible to 1 Corinthians 2.10 and read that passage? Um, oh, yes, Bob. Yes. I, um, what's really amazing me, and of course I've been trying to teach your Luke Acts for about yes. 10, 15 years. But right. In 14, Acts 14, the word for visitation in the mm. Greek is there. Wow. Um, God visited the, the Gentiles. Wow. And if you look at the beginning of Luke, yeah. um, Holy Spirit inspired spokespersons, several. Um, and I can't remember exactly. I know Mary had a statement, Elizabeth, uh, Zacharias, somewhere it said, God has visited. Wow. Same word in the Greek, a visitation wow. of God. So here we have a visitation of Gentiles. Yes. But what happens when there's a visitation? It's one of two things. Either yeah. salvation or judgment. Amen. So when the visitation happens, it's time to repent because Amen. most people think, oh, it's great. God's coming. Right, right. But if you're not right with God, it's not great. It means judgment. Wow. So the word visitation is used both at the beginning of Luke and here, applied to Gentiles. Amen. So he visits ethnic national Israel, and then he visits Gentiles. Amen. Uh, Bob, explain in Luke 19 when Jesus says, because you've missed the time of your visitation when it comes to Israel. The same, same word. Same word, isn't it? It's, a, it's interesting how, and I can't wait to hear you preach through Matthew, but Luke has different emphases. That yeah. doesn't, it's not a contradictory. Right, right. Luke is focusing on... Jerusalem, and the, how many times you stone the prophets, you didn't right. recognize the day of visitation. There's genuine passion, tears. How often I would have gathered you, I may be conflating a little bit of Matthew and Luke here, but I know oh, it's yeah, in there. Right. How often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not have it. Right. You, you, you missed the day of your visitation. Now here, God visits Gentiles, but that does not teach replacement theology. Amen. Amen. Because there's still an until. There's a future. Right. Now is the church age. So the term visitation, and I printed that out somewhere. I'll have to bring it when I'm teaching Sunday yeah. school. Yeah. It's a key word. It is. And it also is applied to the Lord's Supper at times. Amen. Because when you have this supper, some people are saved and some are judged. Right. Just like the Last Supper right. when Judas was judged. Wow, Bob, I love it. I think I got us off the track. Where was... No, okay. that's okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Dan. Which, which verse again? Which uh, First it? Corinthians, oh. I think it's 2.10 if oh. I remember. So what we're looking at is how the and is used in a different way than a conjunction here. Because I'm going to show you that this is something the biblical writers do. I'm not just reading into the text and just making a special plea. But this is something you see quite often. So First Corinthians 2.10, and you'll hear an even in the text, I believe. Right. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. So there it's probably yes. Um, right. 
I think in the NASB, or I forget what version I was in, it's, it'll say, even the deep things of God. And there's actually an and there, a chi. And so that would be the essence of use, even the deep things of God, right? In the same way, if you look at our Acts 15 text, there aren't two different groups. Notice the rest of mankind has to be synonymous with the Gentiles. Is everyone with me? You either have Jews or Gentiles. So everyone else that's outside of the Jews is the rest of mankind. So the and would be namely the Gentiles who are called by my name. So who is the ones who are seeking after God? Well, those who are called by God's name. Those who are called by God. So that would be the elect. Remember, we've often talked about the two different types of calling. There's a universal call that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's really a genuine invitation and command. But then you have what's called the effectual call. The effectual call where it refers to the elect who are chosen that's what's being referred to here. In fact, notice the verb called is a perfect passive verb of epikaleo. Now, why is that important? Well, because the perfect tense accentuates the idea that it was done in the past, the act was completed, but the emphasis is that it's always with you. The effects are always with you. You got your, um, I don't want to bring up something that's kind of a sore subject probably with a lot of us, uh, the vaccine. We don't, don't think about the present vaccine, but think about uh, some other vaccine in the past from, uh, what's a tuberculosis? Did anybody get that one? Uh, smallpox. Maybe smallpox is one. That effect of the vaccine is, in a sense, always with you. It was completed in the past, and it's always with you. That's the emphasis of the perfect tense. Now, why is that important? Because it shows that the calling of God on the elect happened in eternity past, but the effect will always be with them. Why? Because they will be the ones who seek after God because he first sought them. That's the implication of this text. Yes, Nancy. Well, that takes me to um, Exodus 6-7. Yes. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Yes, and he's saying that to Israel. Now, you're absolutely right. The implication, he's saying that of the Gentiles too. And you have Jewish disciples or apostles like James and Peter who are acknowledging that. Absolutely. So my point in bringing that passage is all over the scriptures, you see that it's the elect who end up seeking after God because he first sought after them. That's the idea that we want to see. Yeah, Brian. Quick question. Like Jonah tried to avoid uh, the Lord and, and, and he couldn't run away from right. God. Can the elect ignore God? Can, can the elect not end up saved? Uh, in short answer, no. And it's because God, by hook or by crook, will bring them in. And that's why, yeah, one of the issues that was often hotly debated is a concept called irresistible grace. And I do believe that that's aptly titled because God... See, what will happen is we'll end up... When we debate irresistible grace, people will engage in equivocation. Now, here's what I mean by that. They will say, well, aren't there people out there that are sinning against God who's graciously given them all things in their life, including their very breath? And the answer, of course, is yes. And therefore, they say, well, yes, they're resisting God's grace. This is true. But there's an act by God whereby he brings his elect into the fold that cannot be ultimately overcome 
by human depravity. If it were so, then none of us would be saved. The proof of that is, do you remember in Romans 9.19, the pottery says, well, then, remember Paul's, well, in fact, let's just turn to it so I don't goof it up, but you'll see Paul's expecting this answer, or excuse me, this objection. Why is it fair then if God is the one who foreordains and chooses? Why is it fair then if God is the one who's made me this way? Notice in Romans 9.19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So notice that phrase, for who resists his will, ultimately no one can. So in one sense, we resist God's will by doing evil deeds, his moral will. But his decreative will, where he's chosen some to belong to him cannot ultimately be thwarted. Now, why must that be the answer to Romans 9.19? Because it's an obvious rhetorical question. It demands the obvious answer when he says, who can resist his will? The obvious implied answer is, well, no one can. And so that's the point, is ultimately no one can resist God when they're the elect in the sense that he overcomes that by the power of the Spirit. And so, yeah, so ultimately he by hook or by crook, will bring his elect into the fold. So here's the point. God is the one who ultimately seeks for his people. He is the one who enables them to believe upon Christ, the word of God, and therefore he is the one who endows them with wisdom. And so that's something that we have to see behind the scenes when he says, if you will seek after my wisdom, then. Now, we're going to come to the then portion. What is the benefit of being endowed by God's wisdom that comes from his word. Well, we see this in Proverbs 2, 5 through 8. It says, Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Now, does everyone see the box there that I have on the screen then? This is the apotesis. In, in Hebrew, it's actually there. It's Oz. And it's showing us that now there's a transition. If you will seek after God's wisdom, then well, this is what is going to be the result of it. Now, we pulled back behind the scenes. We said, ultimately, God is the one who seeks for his people. But... Yes, we're commanded to seek after his wisdom. We're commanded to seek after God. And if you will do so all by God's grace, then what? Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Now, to discern the fear of the Lord is synonymous with having his wisdom. Why? Because we know in Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. So that brings us back to Proverbs 1-7. So, the result then, if you will seek after it, you're going to be given the wisdom that comes right from God. In fact, notice the term discern. The term in Hebrew, being, means to both pay attention to and understand. Pay attention to and understand. Both are implied. And so the idea is that if we will seek after wisdom, God will be the one who gives it to us so that we will discern it. We will pay attention to it, and we will understand it. Let me tell you the difference. When I was a flight instructor, most of my students, they're paying good money, and they really did pay attention. But I knew at times that they weren't, even though they were paying attention, they weren't catching the significance of what I was saying. And it wasn't their fault. They just didn't know what they didn't know. 
And so there was times as a flight instructor, you had to fly with them, for example, in a crosswind landing, and they couldn't handle the crosswind, and they didn't understand the control inputs that you were teaching them, the significance of them. But through repetition, and because they're paying attention, finally they understood it, and they had mastery of it. And so, yes, you have a student who's paying attention, but they're still not understanding. What's implied with the discern is both. That's what the people of God will have. Now, what I'm going to relate that to in the next slide or two is the idea that true wisdom comes from God's word, and the people of God are those who have that wisdom and knowledge. When you look at the perversity of the world, and you say, why do they think that way? It's because they are locked out and devoid of the wisdom of God. That's the issue. But we are not. We both pay attention to and understand his wisdom all revealed through the scriptures. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 6 where the wisdom comes from. Notice it's Yahweh who gives wisdom. He's the one who gives it. And I thought about Bob's sermon. It's about a month ago that Bob was in that 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. Remember the message of the cross and the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. In fact, it was a scandal to the Jew, and it was a stumbling block to the Gentile. But to us who are being saved, it's the power and wisdom of God. To those who are called by his name, right? So God is the one who gives the wisdom. That's the source of it. He's the one who gives knowledge and understanding. Now, I also want you to see that God isn't stingy when it comes to giving wisdom. Isn't this great? He gives a huge storehouse of wisdom to his people. Notice here in verse 7, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. He stores it up. He gives it in abundance. So when you see the people of God who know God, they are given an abundance of knowledge and wisdom that the world doesn't have. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to James 1.5. I want you to see that this is a new covenant concept as well, where James says if anyone needs wisdom, they can call on the Lord in prayer, and he is the one who gives generously the wisdom of God. James 1.5, I'll cite that. James chapter 1, verse 5, James says this. He says, but if any of you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously, the term generously, haplos, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So it's given generously by God. Now, I also want you to notice here that added to this giving of wisdom, God is a shield protecting his people, protecting the reputation and the life of his people. So why is the reputation and the life, the physical life, but also our reputation, why are they both important? Well, in the ancient Near East, a man or woman's reputation was as important as life itself. A reputation, yes, it was an honor-shame society. And so here's the idea. If you gather God's wisdom, it keeps you on the straight and narrow path where you don't act like the fool. You don't act in perverse ways that will bring shame upon you. That's the idea. In fact, turn your Bibles to one more passage. I want you to see 1 Peter 2.12, where Peter talks about this. 1 Peter 2.12. 
I'm going to, I'm doing this a little bit today, going from the old to the new, to show you that the new covenant talks about these same concepts. 1 Peter 2.12. So again, how are we kept as a shield by God? Guarding both our reputation and our life. Because in God's wisdom, when we have it, it keeps us from acting in perverse ways. So we see that in 1 Peter 2.12. Notice Peter said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, stop there for just a moment. Isn't it interesting that Peter is talking primarily to Christians in Asia Minor? Many of them probably were Gentiles. A good chunk of them. So why is he saying, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles? Well, here I think Peter is using Gentile as a metaphor for the unbeliever. And this is something that we have to affirm as dispensational evangelicals who believe that there are future promises to Israel, that sometimes the biblical writers do use the image of Gentiles to refer to unbelievers. Implication, Israel refers to believers. But that does not negate the fact that the biblical writers understood that there was a literal promise to a literal physical Israel that's still future. So we can hold on to both things. Just allow the, the writer to use metaphors when he sees fit. So keep your, me- your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now here's the purpose. So that in the thing in which they slander you, notice they're attacking your reputation, they're murdering your reputation, that's the idea, in which they slander you as evildoers, they make because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the question here on this text is, what does it mean to glorify God in the day of visitation? Does that mean they will glorify God in that they will be judged more severely because they attacked those who did godly things? Or does it mean that they will glorify God because they will come to faith and repent and therefore they'll be saved on the day of visitation? By the way, that's Bob's term again there, episcopate the day of visitation. Well, I think we have to affirm it's either or. Remember, as Bob has laid out in the past in writings and in sermons, visitation of God is either or. If you believe, it's unto salvation, and if you disobey and disbelieve, it's unto damnation. So the point is, when you and I act in godly ways, not like the fool, not like the world, we don't shame ourselves. And if people will still attack us, It's just heaping coals upon their head, bringing further judgment because they will disbelieve in the gospel despite even the godly deeds of the elect. But if they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, then they're coming to faith and they'll glorify God. But either way, God is going to be glorified. Oh, yes, God will be glorified in his judgment and he will be glorified in the salvation. So I think it's probably either or in light of the term visitation. But that's how wisdom and God is like a shield to us, guarding, notice, the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Now, let me continue on, and we're going to see that God's wisdom leads to true justice. How many in here have heard a lot about social justice? We've heard a lot of that. What we're going to see is what true justice looks like, and we're going to look at a key verse that really summarizes what justice is. Proverbs 2, 9 through 11. Notice another then, part of the apotheosis. Remember the apotheosis is the if, the apotheosis is the then. If you'll seek wisdom, then, now we have another then. Then you will discern righteousness and justice 
and equity in every good course, for wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. So notice, if you will seek after God's wisdom through his word, you will also discern, again, the same term, being, that means you both are paying attention to and understanding the righteousness and justice of God. Okay, but notice added to that is also equity in every good course. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But righteousness and justice, why is that so significant? Well, remember in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And what that's a fancy way of saying is foundational to God. By the way, he's other things other than that. Loving kindness is added right to it and truth. But righteousness and justice are foundational to who he is. He is righteous and he is just. That's what Psalm 89, 14 is saying. Now, I often will use that in a gospel presentation to the unbeliever. And the reason it's a significant text is because righteousness is the standard for the entire universe as to determine what is right and what's wrong. So how do we know something is right or something is wrong? Well, because God is the one who determines that. He is the only standard. He is the supreme source. But justice has to do with the idea that God will not allow those who violate that righteous standard to go unpunished. He must punish them. And that's what necessitates the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus pays the debt because you and I violated the righteous standard, God must punish it. And therefore, Jesus takes upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that we deserve to be punished with. That's what necess- necessitates the cross. Why, why we have this interlude. Um, so would social justice, is that trying to preempt God or trying to yeah. put words into God's mouth or trying to do something that God's like, I've got this, it's not for you to do this? Absolutely. They're distorting what God has revealed, and they're coming up with their own. Um, A good passage to think about is that Psalm 2, where they take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And so they're coming up with a different morality, one that is immoral. And it's like Isaiah 520. Remember where Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil? They're standing justice on on its head, and they're demanding all of you jump through their immoral hoops in order to be just. All the while, they're violating true justice and what God has commanded. That's the perversity of it all. So what we need to see is that, no, it's through the word of God that we're actually going to understand true justice. That's where it's going to come from. So we don't need to take moral lessons from the world that doesn't know the word of God. Um, Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that at times in life you can't have a believer who is in the wrong and an unbeliever who's in the right. I'm not saying that. Those, there probably are occasions where that happens. But my point is, normally, remember we're talking about generalities in Proverbs, it's the people of God who see the truth of God's righteousness and justice from what is revealed. Does that help? Yeah. So it's being distorted and perverted by the world into a false justice. There's yeah. a lot of churches, even in the metro area, prominent churches that have gone down this path. Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll talk about that as we go. Um, I'm sorry, Bob, did you have something? You had looked like you had the mic. I just wanted a clarification of something we talked about earlier, which yeah. was irresistible grace. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
some people get a wrong idea about that. Yeah. Meaning, we're, we are seeking God, we are believing, and God's forcing us to be Christians because we, we can't resist it. Right. And it isn't exactly. Yeah. And that's why some people say, call it effectual grace. Yeah, amen, amen. Okay, because Jesus said in John 6, and I know we, we, we agree on this. Yeah. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Yes. So some people, as I've debated this over a lot of decades, yes. say, well, that irresistible means, well, why, like you said in Romans 9, just sit here and yeah. he's either going to save us or not. Right. Determinist. So it's effectual is usually the acronym they use nowadays. Is yeah. that correct? That's right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so getting back to our depravity in Romans 9, what you'll see is that in order for the elect to be saved, God is hands-on. He has to overcome our sin nature. But all he has to do to harden the unelect is let them be who they are. And so like Bob is pointing out, God is not in the business of taking someone who wants to come to him and then all of a sudden he opens up his book and says, oh, nope, you don't belong, and then somehow hardening him. That's not what's being referred to. No, what God is doing is he's overcoming the sin nature of those whom he's chosen. And that's uh, one of the reasons why it's been called irresistible. But you're absolutely right. It's this effectual grace where God brings about his purposes all by his power. And that's why Jesus, remember he talked about the rich young ruler. Oh, yes, Jeff back there. The rich young ruler, remember he said to the disciples, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they caught wind of the difficulty and possibility of that. They said, well, then how can anyone be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. Literally, ah, dunotos. It's, it's not, there's no ability. It's, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So God is the one who converts. Yes, Jeff. So is the purpose of the Great Commission simply to wake up the elect? Yeah, um, very good point. So the universal call goes out. So all call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that in the sermon in uh, Pentecost. And that's a genuine invitation. But here's the question. Who is going to respond to it when we see in the text of Scripture, none seek after him, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. Well, I think what we're given the answer to, or the answer that we're given to in Scripture is that it's the elect who end up responding to the universal call. So it's really a universal call. All who are invited, they are genuinely invited, genuinely commanded. In fact, in Mark 1.15, Jesus commands everyone to repent and believe the gospel. That's the universal call. But it's the effectual call. Is That's for the elect. Those are the ones who will respond. Um, a good place to see that is in Romans 8.30, where it says, For those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's a good passage because glorified means you're given a resurrected body and you are living forever with God. Um, that's glorified. Now, we know from Matthew 7 that the vast majority of people are not glorified. They're going to be condemned. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Many enter in through it. So those who are glorified must be just believers but isn't it interesting, if you go back in order, it was only those who are glorified who were first justified, and it's only those who are justified who were first called. 
Do you see what I'm saying? And so the called can't be every human being because in one sense, all are called to believe. All who call upon the name of the Lord, it has to be the elect. Does that make sense, Jeff? I, I'm still wrestling with it. Okay, sure. Yeah, good. Good for you. That's good. I mean, are there, are there elect that don't wake up in time? Although you said earlier that, uh, you know, God will, by hook or by crook, yeah. make you come around, so to speak. Yeah, he loses none. Remember, the, the, Jesus himself makes that promise. All that the Lord, is, the Father, has given to me, I lose none of them. Right? So none of his elect will ever perish. In fact, that's one of the reasons in Second Peter 3 why God is patient, so that none would perish. But when you unpack that none, it's referring not to not every single person, because there are plenty of people who will perish, but specifically the elect, those that are chosen by God. And so, yes, uh, Laverne. I just want clarification on something that Paul said when he was in the boat and the storm was yes. very bad and people were jumping over. But he went to the captain and said, I have seen the Lord. I've, I've heard from the Lord. We're all going to make it, but ye must abide in the ship. Otherwise, you will perish. Sure. Some say that means that you can walk away from your faith and perish as a result. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that the... You know, here we have a concrete uh, example by Paul. In other words, he's talking about a concrete uh, existential, whatever you want to say, threat at the time. I don't know if we want to apply that to a metaphor for all of salvation, number one. He's talking about a specific storm and a specific example. But some passages that would show that you can't depart from the faith. And by the way, we would depart from the faith left our own devices, but thanks be to God, because of his power and his grace, we will not depart. And one of the passages that I always think of is that John 10, 27 through 28. Uh, remember, Jesus rebukes the Jews who don't believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And then he says, but my sheep hear my voice, and I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish. And um, in fact, when he says they shall never perish, it's actually the negation of the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is talking about possibility. So he's actually negating even the possibility of any future perishing. It's the strongest way to negate the possibility of something in the Greek language. And so Jesus is literally saying there's not even a possibility of any future perishing of those who belong to him. And remember then in the very next verse, he says, The Father has given them to me. I and the Father are one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So the idea then is that, um, in fact, Bob's wife, Diane, will often sign her emails. I don't know if you've ever received one. I always think of it is held by his grip. And that's exactly how you and I are going to preserve, uh, be preserved until the end. It's not by our power, it's not by our goodness, but it's by his gracious power. Now, does that mean that we're, we don't have to believe, we don't have to uh, follow the teachings of Christ? No, we really do. But it's only by God's grace and power that we can. And so just as God's grace enables us to believe, he enables us to persevere. And so we often, um, instead of using the phrase eternal security, we like to use the term perseverance of the saints. And the reason I prefer that is the term perseverance of the saints implies that a true believer does persevere. They don't depart ultimately from Jesus Christ. They will not depart unto perdition. I think about Peter. He did for a time, but yet he was restored. Why? Because he really belonged. 
So the people, the faithful believers who walk away from the faith, so to speak, they were believers and then they fall away. Does that, since God will effectually save them anyway, does that mean they just lose some of their reward in heaven? Um, no, if, if a genuine believer will remain in the faith, God will bring them into the fold. But see, we don't know who the elect is. Um, do you remember in Second Peter where Paul, or excuse me, Peter talks about how it appeared for a time that there were people who were believers, but then they were like the dog who went back to its vomit and the pig back to the slop? Now, the reason he uses those two animals is because they're unclean to the Jews. But the idea is that it appeared that these people were believers, but then their actions, they acted like the unclean dog and the unclean pig, revealed that they really weren't believers at all. And so that's why the true believer in Scripture is the one who is preserved by God to persevere in the faith. So God will keep the elect in the fold. So we don't know who that is. We don't have an E on anyone's forehead. And so I can't even be sure ever who technically is saved. But what I can tell you is what the scriptures say is that we can have confidence in salvation. Uh, remember John said in 1 John 5, 13, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. So that we can know, we can have confidence, but I can't know as a pastor who the elect is. But yeah, all I can we do can't is see, but Satan sees because we are sealed and marked. We are sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and whether or not Satan sees that or not, I don't know. But, but the Lord sure knows who are his. Yes, Dana. We'll get a microphone. Well, yes, Bob. What is going over there, this is something everybody ends up facing. Yeah. And uh, including me. And I ran into it when I started teaching verse by verse to the Bible. Yeah. I wasn't taught that in Bible college. Yeah. And the charismatic movement I was in after that didn't believe it. Yeah. But eventually we started going through the Bible, and I couldn't equivocate what's said. But yeah. the comforting thing is we don't know what God knows. Right, right. And what, for example, in Acts, Paul was told, I have many people in this city. Yes. But we don't know who they are. Amen. Amen. So our job is to put in God's hands which is already there, believe it's there. Yes. Well, we don't know. But if we faithfully proclaim the terms of the gospel, who Christ is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us, repent and believe the gospel, then we can trust God will use that. Amen. But the reason this is uh, essential, I don't want to get ahead of myself, I think I will cite Finney in my sermon. Yeah. People have just abused it right well we can create more elect if we just change it so <laughs> if you raise your hand or you sign a card right or maybe if you find purpose right or maybe you have your best life now and so why change anything even if you don't believe in election yeah which a lot of uh people haven't been taught i understand that yeah but if you faithfully preach the terms that god's called us to preach God will save people. Yeah. And if we teach the word of God purely, those who are saved will grow. Amen. God will use it. And if we continue to do that, God's going to use that whether we believe there's an elect or not. But the Bible does say there are. Amen. So what we can all agree on is the universal call. Yeah. And some people gospel. have failed to preach the universal call Amen. because they thought election was genetic. 
Yeah, right, right. Right? Okay, so if you're Dutch and you're in Dutch Reform, that's where I grew up in <laughs> Iowa, well, then we must be the elect or something like that. But it's not genetic. Right, right. And God has his elect amongst the Dutch Reformed. Somebody will preach to him. Right, right. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Yes, Dana. The scripture that stand, always stands out for me in this regard is the one that says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Yeah, her son, exactly. And so, I mean, if you take a snapshot at any one point in time, you're not going to see the whole picture. That's I mean, right. It might appear that some people are saved, and it might appear that some people will never be saved, but we don't know the end result. We don't, we don't know the whole Great story. Great passage I mean, to bring if, up. If you would have looked at Paul at the time of Stephen's martyrdom, you would yes. say, oh, that guy will never be saved. Right. Well, <laughs> right, right, absolutely. So we don't know who the elect is, absolutely, and you're right. They went out from us because they were never of us. Shows that those who truly do belong, they do persevere. Um, I was going to just cite one passage, and then I'll yeah, take the... Good. I'll take this uh, question then or comment. If everyone would just turn to Acts 13, 48, I'll show you a passage that's very difficult to understand without the doctrine of election. And it's Acts 13, 48. Here, Paul, I believe it was at uh, Antioch Pisidia, and it's referring to what happened as a result of the preaching. Acts 13, 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So how many is it that believed? Well, as many as were appointed to eternal life. Well, who did the appointing? Did they appoint themselves? No, it's a divine passive in the text. It's implied. So God, so literally you can read this to say, as many as God appointed believed. Well, I don't know how we get around that. See, my task is to give you what the scriptures say, not to tell you what I want them to say. So that's my solemn task. I swear an oath every morning <laughs> that I come here and teach you, I will teach you what the text says, not what Eric Dalma wants it to say. That's my whole goal. And I don't know how to get around that text and to say, well, this text means that it's those who God looked down the corridor of time or God saw that they wanted to choose him. No, the text doesn't say that. The text says it was those who were appointed believed. And so those are one of the many texts that I look at and say, you know what, the doctrine of election was true. I'll tell you, when it, it hit me, I was actually a, an airline pilot, and I was an Arminian. This is back when I was a young man, just a brand-new believer. And I flew with a guy who believed in the doctrine of election. He started challenging me with these texts. And what happened over time is I realized I had to do great violence to what the text was actually saying to get around the doctrine of election. And so that's what persuaded me. Now, again, everyone has to answer to God what you believe the scriptures to say. I'm, I can't force that upon you. But I'm just telling you, passages like this are very difficult to get around unless we understand the doctrine of election um, as I think the scriptures teach it. Yes, uh, Dave. Uh, okay. I think one important thing to bear in mind is Jesus Christ is the perfect judge, okay? So Amen. I don't think... This is what the way I have to think. I don't think Christians should get so hung up. Is this person still living for the Lord or aren't they? Okay? I can think of certain well-known leaders, an apologist, and I'm not mentioning his name. Mm. And stuff came out after he died. Okay? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to get all hung up about, oh, my, maybe he didn't make it. It's not for me to judge 
I'm a lousy judge, okay? But Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. Um, You know, and for instance, uh, Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against thee. So I think the biggest thing for Christians is to... um, I think maybe even David Jeremiah might have said this. We're, by your fruits, you'll you will them. know them, okay? Amen. That's the biggest thing. Yes. If somebody doesn't have a desire to read the Word of God, and there's other evidences, then that's the most important thing I think you should go by. Yeah, David, thank you. You know, you're citing Matthew 7, and absolutely Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. And the fruit that we can judge is both doctrine, what somebody teaches, and their deeds. But the heart, what they have in their mind, we can't know. God alone is the heart knower. And so you're absolutely right. I think it's a great point that you make, that God alone is the one who ultimately knows who belongs to him and who doesn't, who has faith and who doesn't. So Yeah, absolutely. God is the one who knows his elect. We don't. And that's why Bob was pointing out we preach the universal call. But at the same time, let me hear, let me just say this. I think the text of Scripture is clear on the things that it teaches. I don't think it's ambiguous when it comes to the doctrine of election. Um, So I teach that wholeheartedly. But what I do say to people who disagree, say, hey, let's agree on the universal call. If we get the terms of the gospel, God will use that to save. Uh, as Bob mentioned, we talk about who Christ is, what he did, why we need him, and how do we receive him by faith alone. And if we can use that, God will save his elect through it. Yes? Eric, I think one of the things, and again, part of it has to do with attending here regularly and immersing yourself in the word. The idea, I think we confuse many times a lot of our uh, patriotism and individuality and pick yeah. them up by the bootstraps. That's a nice American trait. Yeah. But when it comes to faith, we need to understand that election is a divine appointment. It's supernatural. It's not that we do this on our own ability. Yes. You know, you can fall back on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as yeah. well. So Amen. Well it's, said. It's hard for us to overcome that. That's right. But it once you understand that, you realize it's fact. It's funny you so. say that. I, I really have always loved America. You know, John Wayne, apple pie, baseball, Chevrolet, the whole nine yards. I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. I'm, I love it. I, I just love it. I love everything about America. I love F-15 flyovers and Lee Greenwood. I tear up when he sings. You know, I, I just love the whole thing. But you're absolutely right. Ephesians chapter 1, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And that's something that, as a young man, I had to come to the realization that what the scriptures say about human depravity is real, that I really don't have the power to come unto him. And that's why Jesus said in John six forty four, no one can, no one literally has the ability, dunatos, to come unto me unless a father draws him. And once I saw human depravity for what it was, I realized anytime someone is saved, it is absolutely a supernatural miracle, a work of God. And that's why in John chapter 1, he says, born not of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Yes, Brian. Somebody earlier made a comment in regards to could somebody could could time run out before an elect 
was saved, and I was looking, yeah. I couldn't remember the verse, but Romans 11:25. I won't read the whole thing, but the end of it is, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Amen, and, good and, text. Yeah, and that is uh, referring to a specific number or uh, uh, that will be saved until that uh, subsides. Yes. Absolutely. Another text everyone wants to turn to to answer that question. Um, if we could just turn to Second Peter three nine, and I'll come right to you then, uh, Steve. But in Second Peter three nine, let me read this to you because it's all about the coming of Christ. Remember, the mockers are saying it's never going to happen. Why has it been so long? It's been all this time. Well, Peter writes Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. What's interesting, if you unpack those that he's talking to, it all has to do with the beloved up in verse 8. That's the elect. And so not wishing that any would perish isn't just every single person because many will perish. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 7 says the wide path leads to destruction. So that he desires none to perish, he's talking about the elect. And so that's a direct answer to that question. The reason why God is slow in the return of Jesus Christ is because all of his elect will come in. At that one day in the future, we don't know when this it could be tonight, think of the bucket being filled. The last of God's elect comes in, and God sends his son. There's also, remember, there's a filling up of the afflictions of Christ. Paul, remember, talks about he took upon himself the sufferings or the afflictions of Christ. Well, there's a whole amount of suffering that's allotted for the people of God. At some point, that bucket is filled as well. And when that happens, is it tonight or tomorrow morning? We don't know. But the point is God knows and he sends forth his son. So none of the elect will ever perish. In God's providential uh, timing, he will bring it about. And we see in his word that this is the case, that he won't allow any to perish. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, Steve. Then we'll close in prayer after your comments. So send us off in the right direction, Steve. <laughs> um. I, I can't help but think of God uh, sitting enthroned in heaven, and he's, he's righteous, and he is so holy. And he, I guess my thought was, was that he has every right to choose. It's his planet. This is his universe. Yeah. He's the owner. He owns everything. Psalm 24 says he owns the earth and everything in it. That includes us. Amen. And so for him, I think he has every right to choose, and I think we need to submit to that. Amen. Well said. Yes, that's Paul's answer, Steve. In Romans 9, well said. God is the one who owns it all, and he gets to decide. Yes, amen. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the wisdom that you give in Scripture, that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. We do pray, as we continue to study Proverbs, that you would give us a real sense of what justice is and what it's not. And I do pray for Bob as he preaches through 1 Corinthians, Lord, that we would have ears to hear so that we would not just be hearers of the word but doers, Lord. And um, I pray for those being baptized again, that, again, today would be a day they'd remember that by faith in you and your Son, Lord, that they have forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Oh, amen. Oh, good. He said we have to awaken dormant moral.